You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Acute decompensated heart failure, the use of mechanical supports. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Matthew Sorrentino, your host, and with me today is Dr. William T. Abraham. Dr. Abraham is the Professor of Internal Medicine and the Director of the Division of Cardiovascular Medicine at Ohio State University Medical Center. Today we're going to talk about acute decompensated heart failure and specifically about the use of different mechanical devices to help these patients. Welcome to the program, Dr. Abraham. Thank you, Matthew. It's a pleasure to join you. This is, of course, a major problem, as you know. In our hospitals, acute decompensated heart failure is filling our wards, and many of these patients just don't do well, even if they're on all the different therapies that are recommended. One of the new therapies is resynchronization therapy. Can you describe to our audience what exactly this is and how it works for our patients? Cardiac resynchronization therapy is designed to treat an underlying problem of the ventricle, which occurs in the setting of heart failure, called ventricular dyssynchrony. And to keep things simple, essentially ventricular dyssynchrony describes a situation in which the walls of the heart are not contracting in a synchronous manner. So one gets a to and fro motion of the ventricular walls, which further impairs the ability of the heart to pump blood. By placing a specialized pacemaker, that has leads or wires that go to both the left as well as right side of the heart, one can restore a more normal contraction pattern and in doing so, improve the function of the heart as a pump. So that means that we can improve ejection fraction and cardiac output with this therapy? We can, and cardiac resynchronization therapy is quite interesting in that it not only improves the function of the heart acutely, through simple mechanical resynchronization of contraction pattern, but it also has a chronic effect to promote reverse remodeling of the ventricle so that the heart gets smaller, functional or dynamic mitral regurgitation is lessened, and the ejection fraction is improved with chronic resynchronization therapy. Now, do all patients with advanced heart failure have problems with synchronization, or are there certain subsets of patients who are more out of sync, if you will, than others? Yeah, this really does apply to a subset of patients, not to all patients. At the present time, ventricular dyssynchrony is defined by the electrocardiogram, specifically by a QRS duration of greater than or equal to 120 milliseconds, a bundle branch block. This creates a situation in which the electrical impulse to the ventricle does not stimulate the walls of the heart to pump in a synchronous fashion. Now we are exploring in studies the ability to also detect ventricular dyssynchrony echocardiographically, and perhaps there are narrow QRS patients who might also benefit from resynchronization therapy. Is there a difference in the degree of dyssynchrony in patients who have a left bundle branch block pattern compared to those who have a right bundle branch block? So the answer is yes and no. In terms of the echocardiographic manifestation of the dysynchrony, it often looks worse, uh, that is more severe, in association with left bundle branch block. But interestingly, in the clinical trials which have been performed to date, patients seem to benefit equally well regardless of the pattern of their bundle branch block. So those with right bundle branch blocks also benefit from cardiac resynchronization therapy. Now, it seems to me to get the heart into synchronization, you want to have simultaneous contraction of both the right and left ventricle instead of typical in a bundle branch block where it's more consecutive. So how do we get the left ventricle to contract at the same time as the right ventricle? So the way that we do that is by uh, placing uh, pacemaker 
Baker leads or wires on both sides of, of the heart. In the early days of investigation of resynchronization therapy, that could only be done using an epicardial approach, which required a surgical procedure. But in the mid to late 1990s, approaches were developed to allow us to deliver these leads in a transvenous fashion, just like we do other pacemaker leads. And this particular left-sided lead is placed via the coronary sinus into the coronary venous system so that the tip of the lead resides within a cardiac vein but lies over top of the left ventricle. That, combined with the RV lead, allows you to stimulate the heart in a simultaneous fashion and restore that more normal contraction pattern. So it sounds like the left ventricular lead, which is in the coronary sinus, in actuality is an epicardial lead then, since it's still on the outside of the heart. True. Now, how do we choose which patients are appropriate for this therapy? Obviously, not everybody is going to benefit. And what is your criteria for thinking that this therapy would be beneficial? So at the present time, the evidence, as well as our our heart failure guidelines, support the routine utilization of cardiac resynchronization therapy in patients who have a reduced ejection fraction that is less than or equal to 35%, who are in normal sinus rhythm, who have class 3 or ambulatory class 4 heart failure despite treatment with a, a good heart failure drug regimen, and who have ventricular dyssynchrony defined by a prolonged cure restoration. The guidelines actually tell us that these patients should receive cardiac resynchronization therapy unless there is a compelling contraindication. You mentioned normal sinus rhythm. Does that mean if the patient goes into atrial fibrillation, they no longer get the benefit? So the reason uh, why the guidelines refer to normal sinus rhythm is because most of the landmark trials which have been performed to date have excluded patients with atrial fibrillation. There is, however, a more recent trial called the PAVE trial, which looked at patients with atrial fibrillation and did demonstrate the efficacy of biventricular pacing. So I do think that it helps in patients even in atrial fibrillation, although the evidence base supporting that indication is a little bit weaker. You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Matthew Sorrentino, and my guest today is Dr. William T. Abraham, and we have been discussing the use of mechanical devices in patients with advanced heart failure. One of the devices that is also typically thought about and used is a defibrillator, ICD therapy. Can we use those with resynchronization therapy, and what are the guidelines for using an ICD? Well, we can, and the indications for ICDs and for CRT, or cardiac resynchronization therapy, overlap in many patients, and the good news is that there are combined CRT ICD devices. So with the implantation of a single device, we can accomplish both. Now, who has an indication for a defibrillator? The sort of old indication, the no-brainer indication for uh, an ICD may be thought of as the secondary prevention indication, a patient who's had resuscitated cardiac arrest, ventricular fibrillation or hemodynamically destabilizing ventricular tachycardia should get a defibrillator. But what's new as of the 2005 American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association Heart Failure Guideline is a strong endorsement for the use of ICDs in the primary prevention of mortality and heart failure. There are landmark trials such as the MEDA-2 and the SCUDHEF trials that have demonstrated that when one implants an ICD in a heart failure patient simply on the basis of heart failure alone and not on the basis of prior arrhythmia, that the defibrillator saves lives. In the MEDA-2 trial, in ischemic heart failure patients, a 31% reduction in mortality. 
in the SCUDHEF trial, a uh, large NIH-sponsored trial in both ischemic and non-ischemic heart failure patients, a 23% reduction in all-cause mortality. Was there a significant difference between patients with an ischemic etiology versus an idiopathic dilated cardiomyopathy? There was not. And again, uh, the data come from the SCUDHEF trial. More than 2,500 patients about equally split between ischemic and non-ischemic etiologies of heart failure. And it turned out that each group seemed to do equally well in terms of outcomes improvement. How bad of a heart failure do we have to start considering ICD therapy? In other words, is there an ejection fraction number that we should use to start thinking of this therapy? So the ejection fraction cutoff based on the clinical trials for a primary prevention ICD is 35%, the exact same as CRT recommendation. And the clinical status or functional status recommendation is to really offer primary prevention ICDs predominantly in class 2 and class 3 heart failure patients. There has not yet been a demonstration of benefit in class 4 patients, and perhaps patients who are at the end stage of their heart failure uh, are unlikely to uh, derive much benefit from a defibrillator. And while there are data suggesting benefit in the class 1 population, there really needs to be some additional study to extend that indication into patients with asymptomatic LV dysfunction. Let's talk about the horizon. Are there some new therapies on the horizon that will go beyond what we have at this point in trying to improve heart function and improve long-term outcomes? Well, there are. And I've been known to say that uh, I believe we're now in a device era for the treatment of heart failure. After the uh, breakthroughs of the 80s and 90s with ACE inhibitors and ARBs, beta blockers, and aldosterone antagonists, the most recent breakthroughs have been gained through devices, CRT devices, ICD devices, in a very selected group of patients, left ventricular assist devices. And now on the horizon are a host of other devices that are currently under investigation. For example, in the uh, realm of electrical therapies for heart failure, there's a very interesting device called the Optimizer, which delivers a therapy that has come to be known as cardiac contractility modulation. Essentially, periodically throughout the day and night, a small electrical impulse is delivered to the heart during the absolute refractory period uh, of the cardiac cycle so as not to pace the heart but as to electrically condition the heart in a way that has been shown in animal models and in human studies to improve contractility while reducing myocardial workload. We have just recently completed enrollment in the U.S. pivotal trial for this device. Now, this device is also a pacemaker-type device, so can it be used in conjunction with CRT and ICD therapy? It can. For the pivotal trial, we actually excluded patients with CRT, but we did include patients with ICDs. If this all works out the way many of us hope it will, I think the next step will be to look at the combination of CRT and cardiac contractility modulation therapy. Now, you mentioned also assist devices. Can you briefly describe what assist devices are and when would we consider using those? Yeah, so ventricular assist devices, and and at the present time, predominantly left ventricular assist devices, are mechanical pumps that can be implanted in the body, still have to connect to a power source outside of the body, but can largely replace the heart's cardiac output. 
a trial which was completed a number of years ago and published in the New England Journal of Medicine called Rematch demonstrated that patients with end-stage or stage D heart failure, largely patients dependent on therapies such as continuous outpatient inotropic therapy, were improved, lived longer, if in fact they received a left ventricular assist device. The second and third generation devices, the axial flow pumps and the magnetically levitated pumps, which are associated with greater durability and fewer side effects, may uh, you know, really bring this therapy into prime time for that relatively select group of patients with end-stage heart failure. I want to thank Dr. William Abraham, Professor of Internal Medicine and Director of the Division of Cardiovascular Medicine at Ohio State University Medical Center. We have been discussing the severe heart failure patient and the use of mechanical support to try to help the quality and hopefully quantity of life of these patients. I am Dr. Matthew Sorrentino. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening.